So I'm starting a two-week series, and it's a two-week series that I probably should have addressed a while ago, because um, I've been thinking about it a while. But uh, I think we've all seen a lot of changes that are coming to our society here in America, and many of you, many, many of us, I should probably say, would put a lot of those changes in the negative, that we're not happy with the way our, our society is traveling, and we're upset about that, worried about that. I'm as concerned as anyone, but I'm more concerned about an attitude that kind of exploded on the U.S. scene. You know, sometimes these things happen over time, and it sort of creeps in, and all of a sudden we realize our culture has changed. But this thing just exploded into the culture, and now it's encouraged by the culture. And it can be summed up in the word outrage. 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 I think we tend to find ourselves in a culture that can be compared to the Tesla, right? The all-electric car. And what do they advertise? Zero to 60 in three seconds, right? And that's what we have. We have people, instead of thinking about compromise and dialogue and discussion about things, they just move right past anger into outrage. And then they express that usually verbally and most often they post things on social media, all right? And they skip the idea that, hey, there's no more listening, no more compromise, no more trying to understand the other person's viewpoint, maybe feeling a little upset, pulling back, thinking about what we're trying to do, praying about what we should say, and just boom, we just blast away, just like the rest of society as well. I can't even watch a sports analysis show anymore. Right? Because two people are picking different sides and instead of talking about it, they just scream at each other. I mean, you guys have experienced this, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Have you ever felt it? Have you felt it creeping into your own heart? I, had to, I have to laugh at myself now a little bit, but I was actually working on this message a couple, about a week ago, right? I was working on this series and this message and I got a text message from one of my staff um, that was asking a question that we've dealt with so many times, right? It's like, I can't believe this question is being asked again, right? And I was not in the office at the time, and so I'm going like, you know, we dealt with this like 15 years ago, and 12 years ago, and nine years ago, and six years ago. I mean, it keeps coming up, and it's like I'm typing this thing, and my heart rate is going up, and I'm hitting the keys harder than usual, <laughs> right? And I stop, and I say to myself, I'm working on a sermon on outrage, <laughs> right? So what am I doing, right? It can creep in because it's so prevalent in today's society. Well, I actually heard a sermon about this that sort of convicted me and sort of shook me up a little bit. And then I found out there was a book out there by an author that I really respect, Ed Stetzer, Christians in an Age of Outrage. And so a lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you today, to be honest with you, comes from those two sources, not everything, but a lot of it comes from those two sources. And I'm going to take two weeks to talk about this. This week, I'm going to be talking about how we got here and what it looks like, okay? How we got here and what it looks like. And next week, I'm going to be talking about how do we get out of this? Like, what's our rescue from this? And my thesis actually next week is our way out is really our way in. And I'll explain what that means next week, okay? So first, obviously, the first thing I want to say is I'm obviously going to be talking about society in general, 
but I'm mainly focusing on the Christian population, our churches, our church, Christian leaders, our responsibility, our obligations to Jesus. I'm going to be focusing on the Christian world in the midst of this, okay? I don't know if any of you remember, but a few years ago, there was a controversy uh, Starbucks when it came to their Christmas cups. Anybody remember what I'm talking about? Because they changed their Christmas cups to be just all red, just an all red Christmas cup, nothing on them except a Star, uh, Starbucks logo, right? And so when they did that, there was a Christian, I hesitate to call him a leader, but he, he had his moment of leadership, I guess. And he has a whole bunch of followers, though. And he um, posted that Starbucks took the Christmas out of, their Christ, out of their cups because they hate Jesus. Okay? And then he also tagged a bunch of media outlets because so, he wanted this to be a controversy, right? And the media outlets are picking this up and they post it and everything. And he, he does have a bunch of followers. And so his followers just said, oh my gosh, they're outraged, right? And it started popping up all over. You know, we've got to boycott Starbucks. We've got to put them out of business. They've got to know this is going to hurt them, right? Which is typical nowadays of responses. It's called cancel culture. If you don't like something, you not only have an opinion against it, but you drive the person out of business. You don't want to even allow him a chance to earn a living, right? It's called cancel culture. It happens all the time. My first question is this. Was it true? Was it true that Starbucks took Christmas out of their cups because they hate Jesus? Of course, the obvious answer is we have no idea why they did that. You don't know unless they say it. You're only guessing that that's what it's for. But if you actually know the truth, which wasn't explained in this guy's post, then you know it wasn't true because they hadn't had anything on their Christmas cups about Christmas for years, at least six years previous to this. I mean, they had things like snowflakes and Christmas trees, things like that, but nothing about Christmas. So all they did was remove the snowflakes and the Christmas trees and made it a red cup. So they obviously did not do this because they hated Jesus, right? But it caused Terrible stir. And here's my really important question. How do you think the corporate office of Starbucks views Christians? How do you think? Suppose I could walk into their office, a corporate office, and say, hey, man, I'm a Christian. I've got really good news. Can you want to hear it? You think they'd be even open to it, right? We have to think about what we're saying and how it affects who we are. So Ed Stetzer in his book, he points to a couple causes that I want to share with you, the, the, why we're acting like this these days. The first cause, he says, is this. The, prior t- uh, the polarization of society in terms of religion and politics. The polarization of society, the American society, in terms of religion and politics. It's somewhat in religion, but it's absolute in politics, right? I mean, a few years ago, politics just divided completely. We never talk to each other. We're never going to compromise, debate something. It's just completely divided. And that has seeped into like every aspect of culture. So we're divided about everything and we just take a hard stand on those things. That's the idea of what Ed Stetzer is saying in his book. Second reason this happens is because there is increasing technology which allows us to expand um, sorry, to respond everywhere quickly without much thought, right? So not only 
do we have this division? But when we hear something that upsets us, we don't have to wait a minute because we got all this social media, man. It's just boom, 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 boom. And it's out there, right? So that makes it so much easier for people to just all of a sudden express with outrage before they even think. Now, I'm going to add a third one that's particularly Christian in its intent. I think the third cause that Christians are involved in this sort of thing and get caught up in the culture is because the movement of our society is away from a Christian culture and toward a post Christian culture. I mean, some of us grew up in a time when most people went to church, the Bible was taken seriously, pastors were respected, and we're just well past that. That's not true anymore in our society. So you put all three of these causes together, and you end up with Christians who are ticked off, right? Watching people around them respond very harshly and taking strict lines and posting harsh things. And we have the ability to do the same thing and all of a sudden we're caught up in it. Now those are just reasons of why it's happening and you may or may not agree with them, but it doesn't tell us whether it's right or not. I wanna talk about whether it's right or not, okay? And I'm gonna propose that it's not right And it's based on misconceptions of who we are as a Christian people and as Christ followers. So here's the first misconception. The first misconception that we have is my outrage is righteous anger, right? I mean, society is just outraged. They're just angry. But when I do it, it's righteous anger because it has something to do with the Bible or my Christian values or something. So my outrage is different than their outrage because it's righteous anger. And I have to tell you, I rarely see anything posted along this line or hear people talk to me and say the things that they're posting online that I would ever consider righteous, right? Um, Here's, I tried to pick a non-political example, okay, of something that was posted that I read. And this is, I guess it's political in the church, but it's not political as far as our country goes, right? So I'm going to read you something. And remember, I did not write this. I'm only reading this. Okay? Here's what the guy posted. It's about women's role in the church. Okay? Hang on. The holiness of God is not evidenced in women when they are brash, Brassy, boisterous, brazen, headstrong, strong-willed, loud-mouthed, overly talkative, having to have the last word, challenging, controlling, manipulative, critical, conceited, arrogant, aggressive, assertive, strident, interruptive, undisciplined, insubordinate, disruptive, dominating, domineering, or clamoring for power. (laughs) By the way, isn't that true for men, too? I'm not sure why it's gender-based here, right? But my point is, you can't hear that without reacting, right? Either you're outrageously offended, right? Or you want to defend that because somebody finally said what you think, right? But you're forced to respond, but it's not for a good response. It's not for a... You don't say to yourself, oh, gosh, I wish I could sit down and talk with this guy, you know? We should have a discussion about this. We should look at some verses together, right? You're pushed to one extreme to another when you read something like this. How many think that's righteous? That's righteous anger? You know the difference between anger and righteous anger, right? It's the word righteous. 
right? Otherwise, it's just anger. It's the same stuff that we read everybody out there who's not a Christian in the same manner and the same attitude. It sounds exactly the same unless it's righteous. So I want to talk a little bit about what righteous anger is, okay? Now, you have to understand theologically, where does righteous anger start? Well, it starts with God, right? Because he's the one who's perfectly righteous and he's perfectly holy. So if we sense when we're reading scripture and we see that he's angry, he even calls himself angry, right? Well, what we know of is this is a perfectly holy and righteous God who's angry. It's something that we don't have. We are not perfectly holy and righteous. So we start on a whole different plane than God does when he's angry. Some people say, well, yeah, but Jesus, all right? Look at Jesus. He got mad. I mean, like outrageously mad when he went to the temple one day and he found there was a bunch of people making money off of poor people who didn't have a sacrifice and they had to buy the sacrifice in order to enter the temple and the money changers were there and he starts yelling at them and tossing tables. Now, don't tell me that's not outrage. Okay, that's outrage. But let's take a closer look at what that was. Let's take a closer look at Jesus and what he was doing there. First of all, who was Jesus? Was he a person like you and me? Well, the answer to that is actually yes. He was a person like us, but he was more than that. He was also God. He's starting with the same character that we just decided we don't have. <laughs> we don't start with a perfect, holy, and righteous character. Jesus does. God the Father does. The Holy Spirit does. But we don't have that option available to us that when we decide to do something, we know it's coming from perfect holiness and righteousness in our life because we're not there. So first of all, let's remember who Jesus was in this situation. Secondly, it helps to understand in this case why he was angry if you look at other times that when Jesus was angry. And one of the most teachable passages in Scripture that talk about Jesus' anger is in Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus walks into a situation that's uh, made up by the Pharisees, leaders of the temple. They want to trap Jesus, so they've got this whole plan. They're going to use the law of God, which says you can't work on a Sabbath, so it's on a Sabbath. And they use this man as a toy, right? They use this man with a withered hand in their attempt to get Jesus to do something on the Sabbath that breaks the law. Will he heal this guy on a Sabbath? And then at that time, it says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger. Okay, so he's angry. He looked around at them in anger, but then listen carefully. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was healed. So he was angry, but what did it come from? He was grieving that they were so far. These were the religious leaders. And he wanted them to understand who he was and who God was and what that law about the Sabbath was all about. Not to serve the law, but to serve people. Of course you can heal on the Sabbath. So his anger sprang from love. He grieves for these people. He didn't hate them. He grieves for the people that he was angry about. Righteous anger froze from love, not from hate. How many of us have been so impassioned by love that we post something nasty, right? Which usually we're upset. 
We're doing it from our anger. Anger isn't the result of intense love the way Jesus had it, right? And lastly, Jesus was not always outraged. There was these points that he was, but we know that where it came from, all right? That's why, by the way, there are tons, tons of scripture that tell you you are not supposed to be angry. I haven't found any that told me exactly how I display righteous anger, but I got a ton of them that says you shouldn't even be angry. So let me share some of those with you. Proverbs 29, 11. Fools give full vent to their rage, rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. So in God's word, if you give full vent to your rage, you're a fool. That's God's word, right? Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Again, there's that word fools, but this is saying it's a command not to be quickly angered, not to respond immediately, not to let your outrage form that quickly, okay? You ever experienced that coming in your life where you just go boom and you're there? Last weekend, I did, okay? Last weekend, I'm a big football fan, right? Yeah, even though my Steelers are having an awful year, but I'm still their fan. So I love, but I love all football. So I try to work around Saturday afternoons during football season and Sunday afternoons and have some significant time there where I can watch the college and the pro football, right? So last weekend, I sat down and I turned on my TV on Saturday afternoon to watch some college football. And I go to ABC and I have Dish Network and Dish says, ABC is not available. And I went, oh, and I looked, and it wasn't available for two straight days, Saturday and Sunday. And I'm saying, oh, well, no football on that station, right? So I flipped to ESPN, and it says, ESPN is not available for two days, right? And I'm like, what? And so I actually click on it, and I say, is it, I can't get a signal. It's not that it can't get a signal, but I click on it, and the CEO of DISH is given a five-minute speech on the reason they have to drop Disney from their list of channels because they couldn't come to an agreement with Disney and it was all Disney's fault and everybody who's listening to this should write Disney a, a, a bad letter. Call them and complain. Five minutes. And then they kept looping it. They just kept playing that for two days. Five minutes, five. And they didn't change the five minutes. It was the same five minutes for two solid days. Right? I lose two days of football because of a five-minute speech they keep playing over and over. I'm out. You think I'm outraged at Disney? I don't care about Disney. I'm outraged at Dish. Right? I'm totally ticked off. I started writing a, a letter to Dish right away. I'm out. I'm out. I'm never going to have you again. I'm not going to subscribe to you anymore. Right? I mean, it's so easy to creep into our lives. But I'm rebuked by these words when it says to me, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. That's what it's telling me as a follower of God. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. You want to stir up conflict or you want to calm a quarrel? Psalm 37, verse 8, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. You are enabling evil when you allow anger to take control of your life. 
regardless of the topic, even if it's a biblical topic. Here's an important one, Colossians 3, 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, okay? As Christians, we are not to have these in our life. Look at that list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. All of that is in the definition of today's outrage in the U.S. Because they're angry, they intend malice, they have uh, slander, they say anything they want about the person, whether it's right or wrong, they call them names, they have filthy language, right? That's exactly what outrage is in today's U.S. society. And I'm told you can't do that. You can't redefine it as righteous, right? You have to not have this in your life if you're going to be a Christ follower. James 1.20, here's a good one. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I can't say it's righteous anger when he just told me my anger doesn't even produce righteousness, right? So some people refer to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. See, there you go. We can be angry and not sin, right? In your anger, do not sin. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, so that's one verse that sounds opposite of all the verses I've given you so far. And we know there's no contradictions in scripture. So I'm going to say we have to think about these verses. How do they go together? Maybe they don't say the opposite. Maybe they're actually saying the same thing. Okay, so this says, do not let your anger in your anger. Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So it doesn't say be angry respond with outrage, post something horrendous, but make sure it all gets done before the sun goes down, right? (laughs) You're okay if that's all taken care of before nighttime, right? That's not what it means. Remember that God is slow to anger. It says that over and over in scripture, right? God is slow to anger. So what do you think it's really saying? You, You might get angry, okay? Nothing wrong with that as long as you don't express it, right? Make sure you deal with it internally during the day. Don't even let one day go by and allow this to remain in your life. Don't sin by expressing something and posting something and letting it turn into outrage. That's what it means. And we're all going to be angry at things, right? I'm still angry that I lost football last weekend, okay? (laughs) We're all going to be angry at things, but we're not supposed to let it develop into outrage. Remember, God is slow to anger. Fix it before sundown. Do not sin. Do not let it escalate into outrage. Outrage is motivated by a desire to hurt, right? To destroy rather than to reconcile and refine. It really is sin. That's the misconception that my anger is righteous anger, right? Second misconception is this. Blank will fix this. And then we put whatever we want in the blank, Okay. We put whatever we want. If only the right political person were elected, it would fix all this, right? So we put somebody's name in there. Or we put a value. If only everybody, you know, really believed the Bible, they should, right? We put that in there. What scares me to death is I know people who put Christian leaders, particular Christian leaders in that, thinking that this person has all the answers, right? If we start grabbing at things, the world's a mess with this. If we start grabbing things that the world offers and said, this is what's going to fix it, we're never going to fix it. Now, there is an answer that goes in that blank. What's the answer? 
the gospel, right? Jesus. Jesus is going to fix all this, but I call it the gospel because Jesus is a little bit too broad, okay? Jesus is up there on the right hand of God, although he resides in those of us who believe through the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the gospel, by what I mean by that is our belief and our commitment to Jesus in our lives and in our faith, a deeper walk with that Jesus. That's what's going to fix this. Might not fix it for the world, but it's going to fix it for us. We're not going to be these type of people, right? Because we're going to be close to God. Now, why does that fix it? Well, first of all, when we have a deeper walk with Jesus, when we really understand his heart for people, it changes our view of other people, even those we disagree with, even those that make us outraged, right? Because we have to say to ourselves, oh, golly, maybe he's in the image of God too, right? And he is. She is. They're in the image of God, too. And I got to remember back to Jesus. He was angry, but it sprang from this deep love, being grieved that this person doesn't have the truth and doesn't even realize they don't have the truth, right? So first of all, it changes our outlook on the people that we're angry about. And secondly, it expands our capacity for fruit of the Spirit, right? Rather than works of the flesh in Galatians 5, it's fruit of the Spirit. Let me read that one verse to you. From Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against these things, it says there is no law. That's what our life is supposed to look like. So, the second misconception is we put other things that become idols in that blank rather than keeping it as, hey, this is about me and my relationship to Christ. It's the gospel in my life that's going to really make me victorious in this. And then the third misconception I want to share is this. Fulfilling Christ's mission is optional in the Christian life. Fulfilling Christ's mission is optional in the Christian life. Too many of us think that what we believe is absolutely essential. Purity of life is absolutely essential. But winning the lost, making disciples of every nation, if I have time for it, I'll do that. That's more optional than just my personal position in Jesus. A Gallup poll a couple years ago showed that 42% of people who identified themselves as evangelical or Bible-believing Christians, okay, 42% of them said the political division and derisiveness in the culture makes it much more hard to share the gospel with people and to develop relationships with non-Christians, whether they're neighbors, associates, or coworkers, okay? So that's a good percentage that say it's harder. And yet, there's a huge percentage of these people that do the same thing. <laughs> Keep the divisiveness going by posting these horrendous things online. Now, I'm going to share two more examples, and these are political, but I wanted to share one on each side of the issue. And I just picked a, 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 an issue that's just close to my heart, right? Because I, I just have a heart for refugees. I think it's a horrendous situation the world has. And those of us who have the resources should be able to do something to get these people out of these horrible, horrible situations. Okay? So I just picked something because I'm always reading stuff about this, right? So on one side, um, a highly respected Christian leader said that immigration was a purely political issue and the Bible has nothing to say about it. And we should halt all immigration, especially of Muslim people. Okay? So that's the one side, right? 
And I read that a while ago. But then last week, I read this on the other side. Um, and this deals with the recent uh, events, uh, particularly Texas and Florida, that are shipping immigrants, putting them in buses, and then shipping up north to sanctuary cities and democratic counties and those type of things, right? So this is what this person says. Any Christian, and he puts that in quotes, any Christian supporting DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, I think you all know that, doesn't understand Jesus. It's just plain evil, okay? So you got that side of it, all right? Well, I don't want to deal with all the immigration because it's technical, you know, it's just bizarrely hard, all right? I think we all can recognize it's fairly hard, but for refugees, I have such a heart for refugees, which is a different category of people. I can give you 30 verses in the Bible that deal with immigration, okay? So the first guy is printing something that's not true, that the Bible has nothing to say about it, has tons to say about immigration, right? And Christians should pay attention to what those verses are. But on the other side, this guy is telling people who don't take that view, um, who take that view, are evil, and he even questions their Christianity, so he puts it in quotes, any Christian, right? I would never call anybody evil who takes a different opinion than me on this. It's a complicated issue, right? It's a, different, it's a difficult issue. But what happens when we read these? We're pushed to one side or the other. We don't stay in the middle. We don't look for dialogue. We're just, yep or nope, right? We're just pushed to outrage. And outrage overcomes truth, and Christians get sidetracked because the mission of Jesus to reach people for Christ is not optional, right? It's part of who we are. It's a worldview. Yes, our personal faith is critical. Yes, our personal purity is absolutely imperative. But so is the command that Jesus gave us to reach the world, whether they're evil people or not, whether they take a different view on us than not, right? This is not optional. It's a misconception to think that it is. It's not optional, and we get sidetracked when we get all involved and caught up in the same atmosphere that our society is and go toward outrage. And when we realize it's not optional, that this is something that's very important to our Christian walk, that should temper our temptation to outrage, right? Because we know that's not going to help us in this. Ed Stetzer says this, outrage is disproportionate, selfish, divisive, visceral, domineering, and dishonest. Dishonest, by the way, he means it's just out to score points, just out to win. It's sin. And what does it do to the Christian mission? Well, how are Christians looked at out there? Are they commemorated or are they eviscerated, right? It destroys our ability to have the Christian mission the way that God wanted us to. Kim Taylor said this, we should be like diamonds in a shop, right? If you go to a jewelry store and you just want to look at like diamonds that are not set in something like a ring, just the diamonds themselves, what does the jeweler do? He takes out a black velvet cloth, lays it on top of the glass counter, and then he dumps the diamonds out on top of it, right? And they really stand out from that black velvet cloth. They don't meld into the darkness, they stand out clearly from the darkness. What a metaphor of who we're... We're not supposed to meld into the darkness and be like the darkness, right? We're supposed to stand out as significantly different because Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So what's your point, Pastor? Well, hopefully I've made it. But in case you missed it, I'm trying to say that God is against outrage. He's just against outrage when it comes to our Christian lives. There's tons of scripture that deal with that. It's just wrong. And the only application I have for you this morning is just take these scriptures that I shared with you and begin to pray about your own heart and soul, right? Just begin to pray about where you are in this because I guarantee you, and I don't think I have to guarantee it because I think you've all experienced it. This will creep into your life. You will find yourself moving this way. When everybody around you is moving this way, you will find yourself moving in this direction. It's going to take some work to not go with society on this, to not go with the flow. So begin with yourself and pray about your commitment. Because in Romans chapter 12, Paul calls us very clearly, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you spend time with Jesus and the Word. So next week, I'm going to tell you how we, what do we do? How do we get out of this? And our way out is really our way in. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have communion. I'm going to ask the ushers to get ready to distribute the elements as I pray for us. Father, thank you for your Word that challenges us at all times. Lord, thank you that it can direct us. When society changes around us in ways that are not pleasing to you, Lord, um, thank you that this can keep us on the straight and narrow, that this can keep us focused. But it also speaks to us when we take turns that, and start to turn into something that you don't want to happen in our lives. It can bring us back. And so, Lord, that's what my prayer is this morning for all of us here, that we would pay attention to your word, that we listen to your spirit, and that we would be the type of Christians that are described as the fruit of the spirit Christians in Galatians 5 in this world so that your mission can continue uninterrupted and that we can lead people, more and more people into your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'd ask the ushers to um, hand out the elements. There's so, it's all self-contained, so um, we're going to keep this method for a while. Um, so let me just describe it to you. It's a little different than other times when we've had it self-contained. It kind of has two sides. One side is the bread. You'll see it in one cup. And then the other side is the juice. You obviously don't want to end, open the juice part until you take the bread because the juice is facing down. And we'll take that first. And you can pull the back off. And then I'll lead us in taking that. Then you flip it over and we'll take the um, juice together. We'll take the cup together. But you know, the instructions for this is written in 1 Corinthians. Paul puts details of how communion is to be served, uh, be served in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians was one of the most messed up, disunified churches in the New Testament. And this is where he put this. I can't think of a better way to start this series than to say, hey, look, that's the world out there, okay? 
We're not supposed to be that way. And the way it can start is we're not going to be that way with each other. We have all different views about all different kinds of things here, okay? But we're not going to be outraged with each other because this is more important than anything else. We are one in Christ, and we're going to treat each other with respect and goodness. I don't have any examples of anyone in our church not doing that, but I think it needs to be stated. We start with ourselves because this is a central part of who we are. And those instructions in 1 Corinthians, Paul was telling the Corinthians church, in spite of your divisions, right, the first focus is to focus back on the center of who you are, which is Jesus. And the bread represents his body, which is broken on the tree. He went to the cross. He paid with his very physical life. And he suffered a great deal when he did that. And that was all done for us, that we don't have to go to a tree, that we can be forgiven. And the cup, he said was the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant. No more the old covenant, no more the law in all its restrictions, right? That we are free in Christ, but we are free to be like Christ. And so as we take the bread and the cup together, I want us to remember that our first focus is that every one of us here who believe Jesus died for our sins, who believe that he's risen, that he lives today, who've asked him, to, be, to forgive our sins and to come into our life and be Lord and direct us on our lives in every part of our life. That's the center of who we are. And we should never, ever forget that, no matter what other peripherals there are that we get involved in. So I'm going to ask us all, and online, hopefully you've prepared as well, to open up the bread part and take it out. This is the bread that represents Christ's body. So let's take it together in remembrance of him. Paul reminds us that after the bread, he also took the cup. He passed it around to his 12 disciples. And as you want to peel this off, peel it slowly. And he said, this is my blood, which was shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me until I come again. So let's do that together now as a body. Father, we thank you for this very short celebration. Doesn't take much time to think through this. Doesn't take much time to actually do it. But it's so critical to who we are. That our identity is not just who we are. Our identity is who you are. We are in you as a new creation. All things old have passed away and all things have become new. And this reminds us that we're never to go back to the old. We're never just to respond on our old attitudes and actions, but rather we seek you. We want to put you first. We want to represent you because you have called us 
in 2 Corinthians, your ambassadors, and those are ambassadors of reconciliation. So we start with our own body together, whether at home or here in person today. Thank you, Father, that we are one. We are one in you. And as one, we will begin this journey in a world that's changing all around us, many times not the way that we would like it. But we will begin the journey to let them know who you are through how we treat each other and also how we treat them. We thank you that you are able and the Holy Spirit is willing to do this in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.